they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome to the Bible with the Barbers. I finally got back. I've been a little under the weather, and I'm still got a fever, but trying to get over some sickness, and I'm grateful to be here with you, and thank you for opening up your Bible every Tuesday with my faithful bride. Mm-hmm. Mary Danielle, we have the gospel reading for today's Mass as John chapter 5, so I'd like to be able to read that gospel reading, so open up your Bible like we do with the Terry and Jesse show. There you go. All right, we have the gospel according to John, yep. John 5, verses 1 through 16. Mm-hmm. And there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, at the Sheep Gate, a pool called in Hebrew Bethesda, mm-hmm. with five porticos. Porticos are porches, so yep. five porches. In these lay a large number of ill, blind, lame, and crippled. One man was there who had been there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, And knew that he had been ill for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be well? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am on the way, someone else gets down before me. Jesus said, rise, take up your mat and walk. Immediately the man became well, took up his mat and walked. Now the day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. He answered them, The man who made me well told me, Take up your mat and walk. They said to him, Who is this man who told you this? The man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away since there was a crowd there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple area and said to him, Look, you are well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began to persecute Jesus because he did this on the Sabbath, the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So a couple of things. The five porticles, and it's interesting because um, in modern times, some scholars denied this story in John. A lot of scholars like to deny that John was um, historical. Is that because they read the scriptures from the perspective of doubt? Yeah, that's what's going on. And also, they, the gospel of John is very evident that Jesus is constantly claiming to be God. Yeah, we can. And for some modern scholars, that made them very uncomfortable. Unbelievable. And John's gospel, of course, is very different than Matthew, Mark, Luke. Oh, yeah. Those are synoptic gospels. There, there's very similar. There's a lot of similarities in those gospels. John's is very different. So it's like, well, what's going on here? Well, the fathers of the church tell us that John, knowing of the existence of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels, didn't want to repeat anything mm-hmm. unnecessarily. So he tried to write about things that weren't already written about. Now, there's a couple of things in John that are the same as you know. Yeah. They, they, he repeats a few stories from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but most of what's in John's gospel wasn't written anywhere else. Like the wedding feast of Cana would be an right, example. Right, exactly, the wedding feast at Cana, and this. And so the scholars, but, but the reality is, is the church, and again, you, you, we have to make a distinction between what the scholars say 
and what the church teaches us. And we have the official teaching office of the church. That's the Holy Father and the bishops who are in union with him. And they teach us the truth. So you're telling me, I think it was Pope Benedict said it as Cardinal Ratzinger, the theologians are not part of the magisterial teachings, are they? That's correct, and neither are the scholars. So there you go. I'm glad to <laughs> hear that. It's the Pope and the bishops it's, in union with them. It sounds like they want, want to be that, but... Well, they do, and they like to put th- question things. And, you know, it's not bad to question. The difficulty <laughs> is is if you're approaching things with an attitude of doubt. There's, there's a different... There is a, there's an, I, um, excuse me, there's an example in the Gospels. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the very beginning... Zechariah is in the temple. He's serving as a priest. And the angel Gabriel tells him, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And he's like, you know, we're beyond childbearing years. This isn't going to happen. He's doubting what the angel's bringing to him. And because of it, remember, he's struck dumb until the day of the circumcision of John when he writes his name is John and then his tongue is loosened again. So he was silent for nine months. And the difference between his response to the angel and the blessed mother When the Blessed Mother says, how can this be since I know not man, she's made a vow of virginity to God. And Joseph has to know this because Joseph, she's espoused to Joseph. So Joseph has agreed to this already. And so they're going to live a virginal marriage, which is what a Josephite marriage is. And the deal is, Mary isn't doubting what the angel says. Mary wants to understand what is God's plan? How can a virgin have a child? This is something I've never heard of. And what is God doing here? Whereas Zechariah doubted. Mm. So yeah, you can ask questions, but not in doubting that God has the power to do certain things like work miracles or Mm. intervene in human history or become man. Mm -hmm. So the gospel of John, and so, you know, some people, some scholars don't like to think it's historical for whatever reasons. And um, some of those reasons are evident. And and one of them is, you know, well, Jesus obviously couldn't have claimed to have been God. Well, (laughs) On whose authority was he working miracles in the other Gospels? On his own. On whose authority was he forgiving sins and casting out demons? On his own, which is God, is the only one who can do these things, and everybody knew that. So every Jew in the crowd, even though he didn't say, I am God, in all those other Gospels, in those three other Gospels, excuse me, he doesn't have to. His actions say it. His, His miracles are the credentials. And so then another thing the question that scholars had questioned for years, and this is scholars, is that, oh, well, they're talking about this place in the temple where there were five porches. There is no place in the temple where there were five porches. Well, guess what? The excavations of the temple area in the 19th and 20th century, I don't remember exactly when, but I remember my, one of my, hist- one of my uh, theology professors at the University of San Francisco, Father Richardson, SJ. He was SJ's Jesuit, he brought up that you know, scholars had laughed at this story because they had said, well, there weren't, wasn't a place. Well, you know what? They found it. The archaeologists found the place where there were five <laughs> porches. And the deal was that the, there was a pool there and the waters would stir. And what was believed and what would happen is the first person who went into the water after the water was stirred mm-hmm. would be cured. And mm-hmm. they believed that it was God sending an angel with curative powers. He mm-hmm. would stir the waters and then a person would be cured. And apparently this man had no family, no friends, no and he didn't him. sit by the edge of the water, he would sit away from the water. So he never had a chance to be the first one in for whatever reason. But now here Jesus comes along and Jesus cures him directly. Now he doesn't know who Jesus is, but later, (laughs) and so when the scribes and Pharisees, well, why are you carrying that mat around on the Sabbath? It's forbidden. 
Well, the man who cured me told me to do it. And obviously the man who cured me has authority from God because he can't cure me. That's what's implied here. Sure. He's working with the authority of God. So he mm-hmm. can tell me that. So then Jesus finds him in the temple and he says, you've been cured. Give up your sins. Mm-hmm. And this is a crucial point, I think, for all of us to realize. When Jesus Christ comes and he's preaching the gospel, the first thing he tells us is you have to give up your sins. Mm-hmm. That's what he came to free us from. You know, Jesus didn't come to eradicate human suffering from this world. Yes, he can cure illness and remove disease. And you know what? Every time we get sick, it's not the devil interfering with God's work. God purifies us through suffering. Mm. Jesus Christ dying on the cross was not the work of the devil. Believe me, it was not. If Satan had understood what was going on on Good Friday, he would have tried to stop the crucifixion. Because... By the crucifixion, Jesus Christ overcomes sin and all of its effects and death. And he redeems and divinizes and sanctifies all the meaning of of suffering, of human suffering. And he gives us the possibility of becoming like him. So when we're suffering, we can offer that. Even illnesses, we can offer that in union with Jesus. And whenever we're doing apostolic work, God will purify the work. And that doesn't mean the devils are getting in the way of the no. work. No, and Mary, because I had been sick these last three weeks, I experienced that even in bed. I said that I'm doing better work for the church in bed if I can offer up all the inconveniences of fevers and no energy and just being in bed and offering it all to Jesus. That's much more efficacious yes. than being on the radio here today. Right. Because every action is like a blank check. If Christ's name is on it, it has infinite value. Yes, and that's true. And that's what sometimes we forget. And too often times we give too much credit to the enemy. Oh, yeah. That's a problem. God needs to purify the work because so much of our pride gets into it. Mm-hmm. Remember, because of original sin, we are more inclined to sin than we are to goodness. Yeah. We don't need the devil's help to sin. <laughs> we don't need any help from the enemy. That's what we're inclined to because of original sin. By original sin, we are turned away from God. We are no longer oriented towards God, but we're turned away from him. And so it's easier for us to sin. It's easier for us to do evil. As a matter of fact, without God's help, we cannot do anything that is truly good. And good, what does good mean? Not what appears to be good. Good means in accords with the will of God. If we want to do things in accord with the will of God, we have to be in union with God. So we have to give up our sins. And we have to know that God himself is the only one, who, and that's why we have a guarding angel. Call on your angel to help you to do the good that God wants you to do. And you know, oftentimes, when the devil can't get us to sin outright and reject God outright, he tempts us to do good things that are not our duty. And I want to give you a little example in terms of the liturgy. You know, according to the teachings of the church, no lay person has a right to be in the sanctuary at any time for any reason. Okay? The sanctuary is the domain of the priest. So any lay person who is allowed in the sanctuary is allowed there by exception, and it's only to assist the priest in his work in the sanctuary. So lay people should not be telling the priest what needs to be done in the sanctuary. As a matter of fact, any lay person who wants to do anything in the sanctuary should be asking the priest is this something that can be done? Is this in accord with liturgical law? Is this in accord with the rubrics? 
That music is coming. That shocked us because many of us have not been told what you just said, but it's the truth. And I'll give you one more liturgical action. During Lent, holy water is still supposed to be in your water from your, in your, in your ponds. Amen. And unfortunately, liturgical guys come up and have better ideas. We'll be right back <laughs> with the Bible with the Barbers. This is Terry Barber inviting you, all the men, to a men's conference June 15th at the Sacred Heart Chapel. This is going to be a day where we're going to talk about true masculinity. You know, there's a problem in the Catholic Church today. We have very few men who love the Catholic faith. And I know a lot of the wives that I'm listening to right now are saying, I want my husband to be on fire for the faith. Send him to the men's conference. Your son, send him to the men's conference by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org or call 877-526-2151. That's June 15th. When your husband comes back from this conference or your son, they're going to have a different view about their Catholic faith because they're going to meet three men who love Jesus and his bride, the church, and are going to instill in them a love for Christ and his church, the Eucharist, Our Lady. Bring them to virginmostpowerfulradio.org. Sign up there or call 877-526-2151. Full sheen ahead. It is only because of your continued prayers and generous donations that Virgin Most Powerful Radio can broadcast live each weekday. We count on your spiritual and financial support because you understand the urgent need for Catholic programming that shares the gospel with clarity and charity, but without compromise. Please prayerfully consider becoming a monthly donor. You can set it up with the touch of a button on our website, catholicrc.org. Buying or selling your home or your business property? This is Terry Barber. Real Estate for Life underwrites The Terry and Jesse Show. And they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. And when they receive their referral fee, they will give 80% of it to a pro-life organization. Wow, that's 80%. Realestateforlife.org, 877-LIFE-US-1. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, welcome back here, and we are so happy to be with you. We just want to finish up here on the Gospel of John. We were talking about doing your duty. Amen. And we got into the liturgical stuff, because yes. oftentimes today, people think that, lay people think it's their duty to be in the sanctuary on Sunday, and actually it's not. The active participation in the liturgy that the Second Vatican Council was striving for was for people to be aware of what the Mass is, mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the entire Paschal mystery of Christ, the wedding, including the wedding feast of the Lamb, and that we be actively placing ourselves on the paten with our Lord mm-hmm. and offering our whole lives to the Lord. Beautiful. Being faithful to the duties of our state in life. That's how we sanctify it. And the duty of the lay people within the church is to sanctify the temporal order, mm-hmm. the family, the marketplace, mm-hmm. the workplace, the political arena, 
And so, yes, our Catholic faith should be in the political arena, and it should inform every political decision we make. And if it doesn't, if we're making some kind of a divorce between, oh, this is political and this is our faith, then we are living a a dualistic life that's just dishonest. So we want to sanctify the temporal order. We want to sanctify our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods. But the sanctuary is supposed to be sanctified by the priests. Mm -hmm. And there are rubrics in regards to liturgy. And oftentimes, you know, the lay people aren't familiar with those rubrics or don't know them. And a lot of misinformation is out there. So you don't need to be in the sanctuary to be doing your duty as a Christian. You need to be actively offering yourself in union with Jesus Christ at the Mass. Read up in the Gospels. Read the prophecies of the Passion of Christ. Read the Wedding Feast of the Lamb, and especially chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, and then chapters 19 and 20 and 21. And then think about those things at Mass and consciously offer yourself in union with Jesus and your whole life. Place yourself in your whole life, your family, your relationships, on the pattern. And so now we're going to get into chapter 13, but we want to finish off here on chapter 12 of Mark with the widow's might. And again, about doing our duties. The the widow in the, the very end of chapter 12 of Mark's gospel she puts in everything that she has to live on. Right. This is most interesting because Jesus said she puts in more than everyone else. You know, she put in two copper coins that were worth about one penny. How many people go around saying, why would I pick up a penny off the street? That's worthless. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? Jesus said this widow put in more than all the others put What's together. Yeah. Because they gave out of their excess. And she, from her want, has given everything she has to live on. Bishop Sheen's commentary was, don't measure your generosity by how much you give, but rather how much you have left over. Exactly. And how many of us have actually given from our want, have given up something that we absolutely needed in order to help someone in need? Now, there's different ways to do that. You can do that spiritually. You can do that emotionally. You can do that psychologically. Or you can do that with your and and your goods, and it's like you know what I you know it's like oh well you know I gave a hundred dollars to a pro life cause I'm pro life or I gave this or that you know and and I wrote a check and I'm supporting the poor and it's like but have we given like the widow gave? So we need to ask ourselves: Have we given like the widow gave? And ask the Lord. Don't beat ourselves up about it. I'm not saying beat yourself up and say oh I'm such a lousy person. I never gave as much as the widow. I've never given. No, it's like you know what, Lord, I need to grow in generosity, and without your grace, I can't do that. So I'm going to humble myself before you. I'm going to admit my weakness, and I'm going to call on your help because you, Lord, are attracted to me by the depth of my need. I don't need to earn your love, Lord. You love me freely. But I need to know the depth of my need so that I can truly give fully to you and depend fully on you for everything. And that's what the widow was doing, and that's what we want to imitate. So chapter 13 goes we on, go. and Jesus is in the temple, and the, the disciples are just, they're wondering. At, I mean, the temple was beautiful. It was incredible. As a matter of fact, when the Romans besieged Jerusalem, Tacitus, the Roman general, yeah. didn't want the temple destroyed. Right. It was an incredible work of art. But <laughs> it, it, was, it was destined to be burned to the ground. And his soldiers set it afire. He actually tried to put it out. I was going to say, he tried to put it out, but he couldn't do it. So he couldn't said, okay, it. let it burn. So he not only let it burn, he said, fine, if you're going to just take Didn't the whole thing the down. outside walls stay? Yeah, 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 but the sanctuary was totally, totally destroyed. Gone. Yeah. Everything on the inside was destroyed. So the foundation was still there, yeah, and there was an outside wall there, but yeah. everything else was totally destroyed. 
And so they were wondering at this. And Jesus said, you see these things, everything will be thrown down and not a stone will be left on a stone. And it's interesting because scholars, you know, like they like to do. Well, obviously, the Gospel of Mark couldn't have been written until after the destruction of Jerusalem. Because so how, could, how could Jesus have known the future? Mm-hmm. How could he possibly have known that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed? I have a good answer for you. Go ahead. <laughs> and what's your answer, Mr. Scholar? No, no, Barber? I'm going to let you answer. Mr. Scholar. No, I've heard. We've had this conversation. Go ahead. No, and the reality is, is you know what? Jesus did know. Exactly. He's God. Yes, he was man, fully man, man without sin. Mm -hmm. And his human nature is fully divinized. He is living in complete union with God. Oh, the hypostatic union. Yes. Big term. It is a big term. And it just just means that it's a union. Right. And it's a union beyond what nature would be. It's beyond nature. Yeah. But God himself humbled himself to become man. And he truly united to himself Mm -hmm. a human nature, but a nature without any sin. Jesus didn't have a darkened intellect, and he didn't have a weakened will. He wasn't living in the dark. He wasn't confused. He wasn't living in confusion and trying to figure mm-hmm. things out as he went around along. Mm-hmm. He knew. He knew everything he needed to know in terms of his mission and what was, what was he to do. And so he tells them, this is what's going to happen. And then you have the signs of destruction. And Jesus goes on to warn the apostles of the signs of the coming of the end. And they, they, you know, they want to know. And Jesus tells them, he says, take heed that no one leads you astray. Mm-hmm. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. Mm-hmm. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes and various plagues and famines. But the, that is the beginning of the sufferings. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. In the mind of the early first century Jews and in the apostles, the very fact that he, that he was mentioning the destruction of Jerusalem was like, well, as far as they're concerned, if the temple is destroyed, that's it. The world has come to an end. What else is there? This is God's place. This is where we worship God. This is where man and God meet because God set it up that way. This is from God. How could it possibly destroy? What, what could possibly bring about its destruction? Well, you know, it's not the first time the temple would have been destroyed. And so, number one, Jesus has historic, he has the knowledge of the history of the yeah. first time the temple was destroyed. And that happened, you know, about 586 BC, the, the temple was destroyed. The Jews in, in Judah and, and um, the last two tribes were carried off into exile, and the temple was destroyed. And then it was rebuilt under Cyrus, the king of Persia, by God's. So, so there is the historical reality of how the temple was destroyed, which Jesus would have had knowledge of. And by the way, it was burned the first time it was destroyed. Not a stone was left on a stone. But Jesus also is God, and he does have certain foreknowledge of the future. And those who want to say that he doesn't are denying his divinity. Mm. They may not be openly denying it, but subtly they're denying it. How could he possibly know this? If he was truly man, how could he know? Well, excuse me, honey. (laughs) He wasn't just truly man. He was truly man, man without sin, so he had no darkened intellect. He had no weakened will. Look at what God has done through his saints. Read the lives of the saints. Read the miracles and the prophecies saints have made. Prophets foretold the future, not to foretell the future. They were telling us what God was warning us of. This is what's going to happen if you don't give up your sins. That's what the point is. Are you willing to give up your sins and turn back to God? And if you're not you're going to see some pretty horrible things. 
and and in every age we seem to forget the lesson it's like well lord can't we just have a finality in this world can't we just live for this world and you know have peace in this world and not have any suffering in this world and god's like honey I want you to live in heaven with me for all eternity. I have made something so much better for you, Mm -hmm. so much beyond this world. Your finality is heaven in union with me. And so he warns his apostles, you're going to be delivered over to councils, and they're going to beat you in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake, and you'll testify before them. But the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial, are you supposed to prepare beforehand? Which are you, I have to carefully plan this oh, out. Oh, yeah, I got to know exactly happen. what I'm going to say. No. And he says, do not be anxious beforehand mm-hmm. what you are to say, mm-hmm. but say whatever is given you in that hour, mm-hmm. for it is not you who will speak, but the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And brother will deliver brother to death, and father his child. And children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. So is it, oh, Lord, I was faithful to you today. Now I don't have to ever be faithful again. Once saved, always saved. Lord, but I gave my life to you. So I don't have to be, you know, I can break all the commandments. And, but I said, Lord, you're my savior. So no. doesn't work that way. Endurance to the end. By the way, the grace of final perseverance is something we need to ask for every day. Every day for that. We need to ask for Holy it. because. Death. We cannot merit it. And do we receive merit? Yes. Because of what we do? No, but because God himself attaches merit to certain things we do. And do we know from the scriptures that we receive merit? Well, St. Paul said from now on, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. I have I've kept the faith. From now on, a merited crown awaits me. I'm sorry, the whole passage escapes me right now. But the point is, a merited crown awaits me. And this is the Holy Spirit speaking through St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Yes, God attaches merit to what we do. And it's not that we earn God's love through what we do. That's not what we're saying. But God does attach merit to certain things that we do. And certain actions have certain rewards with them. And God promised this. But to receive the grace of final perseverance, we need to ask for it every day. Mm-hmm. It's not once saved, always saved. It's, okay, Lord, you have given me your grace today. Now, each day I need to ask for that again and again. And there was a um, man whose video, uh, testimony we heard. Oh, yeah, you too. He grew up as a Baptist. That's right. And he said, I had always been told once saved, always saved. When I was 14 years old, I received the Lord Jesus into my heart as yeah. my Lord and Savior. But at the age of 17, I rejected God. Yeah. But I was truly, you know, and he said, but what I learned through my, through my having a near-death experience, what he learned from God is that, no, take up your cross daily and follow me. <laughs> So every day we need to ask for that grace of final perseverance. And this is what we need to do is persevere to the end. And will we be persecuted for the faith? Yes. Will we suffer for the faith? Yes. If we're following Christ, we're going to look like Christ. That means we're going to be crucified. So when we get sick, when we're not feeling good, when things go wrong in the apostolate, stop saying the devil. Say, Lord, you're purifying the work. Show us how to do what you want us to do. Is there a direction we're going right now that maybe isn't in accord with your will? It's like that. You know, if, if parents are neglecting their children and they're up there in the sanctuary on Sunday and nobody's taking care of the kids in the pew, um, they shouldn't be in the sanctuary. Exactly. They need to be taking care of their children. And don't persecute them if they're not taking care of what's in the sanctuary because they're taking care of their kids because their first duty is to their children. 
we're halfway through Lent. You know, Bishop Sheen says it well when he says, without Good Friday, there's no Easter Sunday. There it is. And so, again, every action's like that blank check. So when we come back, we'll continue with the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 13. We're making a little progress. Notice <laughs> I said a little? A little. All righty. We'll be right back with the Bible with the Barbers. I hope you're enjoying it. Get yourself another cup of coffee or some tea. Join you in just a This is Terry Barber inviting you, all the men, to a men's conference June 15th at the Sacred Heart Chapel. This is going to be a day where we're going to talk about true masculinity. You know, there's a problem in the Catholic Church today. We have very few men who love the Catholic faith. And I know a lot of the wives that I'm listening to right now are saying, I want my husband to be on fire for the faith. Send him to the men's conference. Your son, send him to the men's conference by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org or call 877-526-2151. That's June 15th. When your husband comes back from this conference or your son, they're going to have a different view about their Catholic faith because they're going to meet three men who love Jesus and his bride, the church, and are going to instill in them a love for Christ and his church, the Eucharist, Our Lady. Bring them to virginmostpowerfulradio.org. Sign up there or call 877-526-2151. Full sheen ahead. It is only because of your continued prayers and generous donations that Virgin Most Powerful Radio can broadcast live each weekday. We count on your spiritual and financial support because you understand the urgent need for Catholic programming that shares the gospel with clarity and charity, but without compromise. Please prayerfully consider becoming a monthly donor. You can set it up with the touch of a button on our website, catholicrc.org. Buying or selling your home or your business property? This is Terry Barber. Real Estate for Life underwrites The Terry and Jesse Show. And they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. And when they receive their referral fee, they will give 80% of it to a pro-life organization. Wow! That's 80%. Realestateforlife.org, 877-LIFE-US-1. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Well, thank you, Jesse, for bringing us back there. We appreciate that. <laughs> it's a great day. What a, what a privilege to be able to study God's holy word. Amen. And, and again, you know, as Terry said at the end of the Terry and Jesse show, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. We get that from St. Jerome, and we Catholics do believe in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's our family heirloom. It was the bishops of the Catholic Church who put the Bible together, and we're grateful to God for that. It's God's holy word. It's inspired word. And, you know, again, the scholars sometimes like to say things like, well, you know, this, that, or the other thing. But the church teaches us that the Bible is the inspired word of God mm -hmm. and that the original texts are inerrant. Now, remember, St. Augustine tells us that 
if we get a problem where we can't resolve a, a, an issue in the scriptures, mm-hmm. there seems to be a contradiction that really we don't seem to be able, um, we could have a bad copy. We could have a bad translation. The copies in the translation aren't guaranteed to be inerrant. Oh, but there was a third possibility St. Augustine gave us. Now, I, I realize this would be really hard for any of us, but of course, mm-hmm. you know, this was back in Augustine's day when people made lots of mistakes. Um, and so he said, maybe there's something I don't understand. Or does that apply to us too? Maybe there's things in the scriptures that we don't fully understand and we don't want to accept. We say, oh no, that couldn't be true. God would never allow that. God would never tell. Well, you know what? Am I God? If I were God, I wouldn't be here. (laughs) You know, I can't dictate to God who he is or what he would or wouldn't allow. God is God and we are not. And he gives men freedom. And yes, he does allow evil. That doesn't mean he created it. And it doesn't mean he created sin. He didn't. God made everything, and everything that he made was good. And man was made in his image and likeness. And we are supposed to image God in everything we do. So just just to remind people that the scriptures are God's holy word. And yeah, we're reading translations, but the church really works at getting us good translations. And we also have the authority of the church to say that, especially what's written in the Gospels or what Jesus really did and taught while he was living among men. So they're, And they are historical. The church... Now, that's not history like 20th century man writes history. It's first century, um, what we call uh, the historical biographies of the first, of the early, the ancient world. And, but it's true. It really is what Jesus did and taught. Mm -hmm. So Jesus tells them, he said, he goes on and he's talking, now he's talking specifically about the destruction of Jerusalem. He said, when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are on the housetops not go down to the house or take anything with them. Mm-hmm. And let those who are in the field not turn back. Just run, go. And he says, alas, for those who are in child or who are nursing babies at that time, pray that it may not happen during winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation when God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, is, as in with all prophecy, sometimes you see a, f- compl- a, a partial fulfillment and not a complete fulfillment. Mm-hmm. You have here a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. What is he referring to when you see the desolating sacrilege where it ought not to be? He's referring to a prophecy in the book of Daniel. And so in order to understand it, that's why it says, let the reader understand Go back and read the book of Daniel and the prophecy that Daniel gave. And so when you see that desolating sacrilege, that is anything that is in the temple that doesn't belong there, okay? Abomination of desolation, as it's sometimes um, translated, it's from Daniel 9, verse 27. And it's designated any idolatrous, sacrilegious person, thing, or outrage, or, or act outrageous to the religious faith and worship of the Jewish people. So it was any person, thing, or act that were a sacrilege. When you see that in the temple, it's time to flee. And by the way, there were no Christians in Jerusalem when the Romans came in 70 AD to destroy Jerusalem. They took this literally, and they left. They didn't stay. And what's interesting about those scholars who like to say this gospel couldn't have been written until after the destruction of Jerusalem, well, What's interesting is why would Mark say, pray that it not happen in winter? 
if the destruction of Jerusalem had already taken place and we knew no, when it happened no. and everything is spoken of in the future tense. Mm-hmm. There's, and in all four of the Gospels, when the destruction of Jerusalem is talked about, it's talked about in the future tense. And you're told to pray that this doesn't happen in winter. And it's like, well, why is everything in the future tense? Why are we being told to pray that it's not going to happen in winter if it's already taken place? So, again, the internal evidence has to coincide with, if you're going to talk about a passage and what it means, your internal evidence has to support your conclusions. And the internal evidence of the Gospels does not support the conclusion that this was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the internal evidence of all four of the Gospels support that all four of the Gospels were written before the destruction of Jerusalem. Interesting point. So, you know, the scholars do their little jobs and they say what they say and sometimes they get things wrong and sometimes they get things right. And, but we do have the teachings of the church to tell us where we should look for the truth. And again, you know, the fathers of the church weren't in 100% agreement about when the Gospels were written. For the most part, the fathers, Matthew was written first and then there's not a full 100% agreement about whether Mark or Luke was written second. Mm-hmm. And then John was written fourth. So Mark, Matthew was first, Mark, and John was fourth. And Mark and Luke, eh, we're not sure. But who wrote the Gospels? There was no disagreement among the fathers of the church that the Gospels were actually written by Matthew, the tax collector, Mark, who had been the secretary for Peter and accompanied Peter, Luke, who had been the secretary for Paul and accompanied Paul, and John, the evangelist. John, the apostle, the beloved disciple, who rested his breast on Jesus's breast, who rested his head on Jesus's breast, his head on Jesus's breast at the Last Supper, and who was present at the foot of the cross. Okay, that's 100% agreement. And all, by the way, all the um, manuscript evidence, none of the gos- none of the four Gospels in the Bible, those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, none of them are anonymous. Every single one of them has the superscript, according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, or according to John, or just the names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't always say according to. They don't have to. So that they were written by those four is is unanimous among the fathers of the church. So the church tells us, yes. In terms of the, the dating of them, well, we don't have 100% surety. So we have to kind of guess at that. But we, yeah. we can know from the internal evidence that they were all written before the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jesus really did predict the destruction of Jerusalem and what it would look like. And it wasn't a pretty picture. And believe me, when it happened, it wasn't pretty either. And then he goes on to talk about the end of the world also, because remember, for the Jews, again, the destruction of Jerusalem essentially meant, the destruction of the temple and specifically meant the end of the world. You see, for the Jews, Jerusalem, especially the temple, was a microcosm of the world. So if it was going to be destroyed, that was the end of the world. And um, so he goes on to tell them that when they say that, you know, the Christ is here, the Christ is there, there's going to be false, don't go, don't run after it. Don't go looking for Christ in kinds of strange places because many false Christs and prophets are going to arise and they may even show signs and wonders and lead people astray. There are people who can work miracles and do what seems to be supernatural things, mm-hmm. and their power doesn't come from God. Their power comes from the enemy. Remember, the ain't Satan, the adversary, our enemy, the, the devil, is a supernatural being. He's not God, but he has a lot of power, and he can do things that appear miraculous. Remember the story 
and it's not just the story, but when Moses was in Egypt and all the wonders that Moses worked before the Pharaoh, mm-hmm. and Pharaoh's magicians could do the same things. And it's like, what? And so because Pharaoh's magicians could mimic all the signs and wonders God was doing in Egypt to prove to Pharaoh that it was God who was speaking to let my people go and worship me, um, Pharaoh's getting stubborner and stubborner. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. Let my slaves go? Are you serious? Come on. Who do you think you are? So finally God gives him a sign that, no, that their, their magicians are not going to be able to mimic. Mm-hmm. And that was the death of the firstborn. Mm-hmm. The death of the firstborn. And no, no Israelite lost the, their firstborn in that when the angel of death passed over Egypt. And so, yeah, the demons can mimic signs and wonders. And they can, they can be pretty impressive. And that's why we need to cling to Christ. So it's not about listening to people who say, oh, Jesus is here and Jesus is there. No, he says, there's going to be a lot of tribulation. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Now, again, here, Jesus is not just talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which he is partially talking about, but he's also talking about the end of the world. And how are we going to know the signs? What's interesting is this does refer in somewhat, you know, the immediate historical circumstances that, yeah, because in the temple, the sun, the moon, and the stars are painted on the dome of the Mm, temple. I didn't know that. Yeah. Because the temple is a microcosm oh, right. of the universe, yeah, right. of everything yeah. that God created. So when the temple was destroyed, <laughs> the sun was darkened, the moon did not yeah. shed its light, the stars fell from the heavens because the dome of the temple fell. So everything that was on the dome also fell. Now, we also have on the day of crucifixion, when Jesus was crucified, the sun refused to shine. Yeah, the darkness, at, and it wasn't an eclipse. Mm-hmm. And why do we know it wasn't an eclipse? Because it was a deep and terrifying darkness. The moon was blood red at noonday. It wasn't an eclipse. And it was and the sun refused to shine. There was a darkness and, and the earthquake. And so you have the destruction of the temple, which is Jesus' body, which is going to take place on Calvary, which is coming very soon in this gospel. You have the destruction of the temple at 70 AD. And then you have the end of the world. And, and all three of these things are, you know, Jesus' the destruction of his body is a, is a sign of the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. But the temple won't be raised again because the kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish is his church. Mm-hmm. It's not like, and there was, a, there was a, a scholar at one point in the early 20th century who said, oh, Jesus came to establish the, the kingdom and we got the church. No. I've heard that one. Yeah, the kingdom of heaven and the church are one and the same. Amen. Jesus came to establish his church, and he did establish the church. And that music is playing again, Terry. It's amazing. <laughs> Come right back with more of the Gospel of Mark here at the Bible with the Barbers. Thanks again for all your support for Virgin Most Powerful. Go to our website, virginmostpowerfulradio.org. This is Terry Barber inviting you 
all the men to a men's conference June 15th at the Sacred Heart Chapel. This is going to be a day where we're going to talk about true masculinity. You know, there's a problem in the Catholic Church today. We have very few men who love the Catholic faith. And I know a lot of the wives that I'm listening to right now are saying, I want my husband to be on fire for the faith. Send him to the men's conference. Your son, send him to the men's conference by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org or call 877-526-2151. That's June 15th. When your husband comes back from this conference or your son, they're going to have a different view about their Catholic faith because they're going to meet three men who love Jesus and his bride, the church, and are going to instill in them a love for Christ and his church, the Eucharist, Our Lady. Bring them to virginmostpowerfulradio.org. Sign up there or call 877-526-2151. Full sheen ahead. It is only because of your continued prayers and generous donations that Virgin Most Powerful Radio can broadcast live each weekday. We count on your spiritual and financial support because you understand the urgent need for Catholic programming that shares the gospel with clarity and charity, but without compromise. Please prayerfully consider becoming a monthly donor. You can set it up with the touch of a button on our website, catholicrc.org. Buying or selling your home or your business property? This is Terry Barber. Real Estate for Life underwrites The Terry and Jesse Show. And they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. And when they receive their referral fee, they will give 80% of it to a pro-life organization. Wow, that's 80%. Realestateforlife.org, 877-LIFE-US-1. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Um, Terry's not, not, not with us right now. <laughs> it's, I'm going to finish this off solo. Um, not, never solo. I always have my guardian angel with me, and I hope my guardian angel's helping me, and I hope I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so that what I... What, we don't want to present our own opinions here. We want to stay faithful to the church, and we want to stay faithful to the Lord. We want to do what the Lord wants us to do for as long as we can, for the praise of his glory, that his kingdom would come and his will be done. So Terry went to get some rest, um, and uh, please God, he'll be back tomorrow with the Terry and Jesse show. So we're going to finish off here the chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is warning us about the end of time, and, of course, the end of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, his own death. And, and um, yes, the world as we know it is passing away. We have here no finality in this world. We weren't made for finality in this world. You know, we don't need to live our lives as if this is the only world there is. So from the fig tree, learn a lesson. You know that, you know, when you see the fig tree blossoming, well, you know that it's summertime. And that's the fig tree, you know, that it blossoms in the spring, summer comes along. So also, when these things take place, know that he is very near and at the very gate. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
And so, you know, some modern scholars like to say, well, obviously Jesus made a mistake. He expected the end of the world to come very soon. And apparently so did his followers, you know, because this is what he said. Well, no, (laughs) he was telling them, number one, this generation isn't going to pass away before my death because I'm going to die on the cross very soon. Number two, this generation is not going to pass away before the destruction of Jerusalem, which are both forerunners of the end of the world. And he wasn't talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. So this generation wasn't going to pass away before Jerusalem was destroyed. And they didn't pass away. But in terms of the actual end of the world, he goes on to say, the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the sun, but only the Father in the heaven. Now, there are those who read that and they say, oh, you see, Jesus can't be the Son of God. He can't truly be God because he didn't know when the end of the world was. Well, is that what he was referring to? Is that what he was saying? It wasn't for him to reveal to his followers when the end of the world would come. And he didn't even give the exact date of the end of when Jerusalem would be destroyed. Because it's not for them to know. What we need to do is focus on following the Lord day by day, doing the duties of our state in life and being faithful to that. All right? Being faithful. And that's what we want to do. And so he says it's like a man going on a journey and he leaves the servants in charge. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. He might come at midnight, he might come at cockcrow, he might come in the morning. But if you're not watching, he may find you asleep when he comes. And then what? So what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So Jesus is telling us, yes, things are going to happen. Not everything is going to go real well. There are going to be trials, tribulations, crosses, toils, disappointments. That's life. That's going to happen. God made a perfect world. Remember that. And man sinned. Man turned away from God's perfect world and decided, well, I can decide for myself. And in deciding for himself, he rejected the perfections that God had made. And so he made for himself a sinful world, man did. But God said, I'm not going to abandon you there. I'm not going to leave you to a natural end. Instead, I'm going to send a redeemer who's going to redeem you and going to redeem everything that has fallen. He's going to redeem. But there's no finality in this world. The Redeemer will show you the truth, and the truth is that you were made for union with God. That union with God is not just meant to be in heaven when we die. We're supposed to begin that union here on earth. We're supposed to begin living in union with Jesus Christ now. And so we strive every day to live in union with the Lord. How can I be living in union with the Lord if I don't even know him? And how can I know him if I don't pray? Prayer is not about, Lord, give me this, give me that, give me the other thing. Lord, make a perfect, peaceful world where there's nobody's hating anybody and nobody's doing anything bad and whatever. Prayer is about, first of all, praising the Lord. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then we ask, yes, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. And how? As we forgive. And lead us not into temptation, But deliver us from evil, and that is deliver us from the enemy, from the devil. That's a specific petition to be delivered from a specific evil, Satan, the adversary. So every prayer we pray should first be a praise of God. 
and asking for the coming of his kingdom and and that his will be accomplished. And that's what we want to strive for. And this is what the Lord showed us in his life. He didn't come to do his own will. Sacrifice or oblation you sought not, but ears open to obedience you gave me. Holocaust and sin offering you sought not. Then said I, behold, I come. To do your will, O God, is my delight. For in the, in the written scroll is prescribed for me. So this is, this is what Jesus came to do, and this is what we what want to strive to do. And to do the will of God means to do the duties of our state in life. And we need to be faithful. And as we talked about at the very beginning, in the liturgy, the role of the laity is to actively, inwardly unite themselves and their whole lives to the sacrifice of Christ that's taking place on the altar in an unbloody manner. We do not believe that we're crucifying Christ again, but we do believe that time and space no longer exist in the liturgy, in the sacred liturgy of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and that we are present, true witnesses of the sacrifice on Calvary, but we're also present and witnesses of his burial, his resurrection, his glorification in heaven, and the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we have to read the whole story in order to get the full picture. And we're supposed to unite our whole lives to that and place ourselves on the patent with him. And as we finish up chapter 13, well, guess what comes next? Chapter 14. (laughs) What's interesting here in the Gospel of Mark, we're getting into the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to get into his Paschal mystery. And the Mass, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, is the entire Paschal mystery of Christ presented to us in an unbloody manner because Jesus now offers this sacrifice in his risen, ascended, glorified state in heaven. The lamb who was slain is no longer dying, but he still bears his scars in heaven. And he makes intercession before the Father. Read chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. And also, the victim who immolated himself is no longer dying, but he makes for all eternity this immolation of himself, this act of immolated love. He's continually offering himself before the Father. And as we get into the passion of the Lord here, as we come into the last final weeks of Lent, we've had Laetare Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Lent. We have two more Sundays in Lent, and then we go into Passion Week. You know, the, the, the sixth Sunday of Lent is Palm Sunday. So Jesus was fully aware of what was coming. He was truly God, truly man. But he knew he's man without sin. He has no darkened intellect. He has no weakened will. And the church said there was no confusion, no admixture. You know, his human nature is truly a human nature, but he's not a human person. He's a divine person who's taken to himself a human nature. And he knows his human nature is fully informed by his divinity as to what his mission is. And that, by the way, was from the first moment of his conception. And I know some people don't want to accept that because they say, well, then he wasn't fully human. We don't know what it means. Remember, Adam and Eve were created in God's image in the beginning. But they weren't created as little babies. They were created as full adults. But they had infused knowledge, and that was above and beyond their nature. The human soul of Jesus Christ was given gifts. The preternatural gifts were his infused knowledge. He had no sin. And so the human soul of Jesus Christ is truly human, and his body is truly human. He really does suffer in his human body. But his knowledge is beyond the knowledge of any other man, because the knowledge of every other man is affected by sin. 
And even Adam and Eve made a mistake in their knowledge. But the human soul of Jesus Christ is united to the Godhead. So it, it has gifts beyond what Adam and Eve had because he's united to God. And the church teaches us that he knew what his mission was and what it entailed. You know, when he was 12 years old in the temple, he already knew he was God. When he was a little boy growing up, you know, you have, and you have these, you know, supposedly during this time of the year, there are people who say, oh, we've discovered these lost gospels. These lost gospels, by the way, weren't lost. They were known of by the fathers of the church. The infancy narrative of Thomas, the, you know, the gospel according to Thomas, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Peter. The fathers of the church denounced all of those as fraudulent. Those were Gnostic gospels. They were filled with secret knowledge that only a certain people, certain number of people could know. Those were known by the fathers of the church, and they were rejected, roundly rejected as fraudulent and false. So the, the, what's portrayed in the secret gospels, they're not secret. There's nothing secret about them. And they weren't lost until the 19th and 20th century and then suddenly discovered the fathers of the church knew about them. This is why it's important to go back and read the fathers. So we don't forget the history. Sometimes we do forget the history, and that's one of the things that's been happened in the 20th century. We forgot the history. And because we forgot the history, we're repeating the mistakes, and we're falling into the heresies that have already been condemned by the church, roundly condemned. And so Jesus, in chapter 14, is going to begin to enter into his passion. And at the beginning of chapter 14, you have the Passover feast of unleavened bread is near, and the Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus. They want to kill him, but not during the feast. They don't want to cause a riot among the people. They know that the people are looking to Jesus to be the Messiah, and they don't want to cause any trouble at all among the people. They don't want to start a riot, They but they want to figure out a way to get rid of Jesus without, you know, Stirring up the people. So they got to bide their time and do things just right. So next week, please God, we'll be getting into chapter 14. You can read that ahead of time and pray over it, begin to look at that. And we know that Jesus calls us to live in union with him and to follow him the way he followed the Father. His human nature was perfectly subject to the Father. And he didn't rebel against the Father's will. So we want to do our duties of our state in life. We want to be faithful to the Lord. We want to be faithful to the church. Jesus Christ, as I said, it's not that Jesus came to establish the kingdom and we got the church. The church is the kingdom of God on earth. So we want to be faithful to the church. If you can make a donation today to support this work called 877-526-2151. Please, God, we'll be back next week to do more Bible study on the gospel of Mark. We're so glad that you've joined us. And we're so grateful for your support. Pray for us. That's We need your prayerful support as well as your financial support. And remember, live in the state of grace. Don't live in the state of moral sin. Renew your baptismal vows every day. And ask God for more faith every day. St. Faustina's Prayer for Priests Oh my Jesus, I beg thee on behalf of the whole church, grant it love and the light of thy spirit, and give power to the words of priests, so that hardened hearts might be brought to repentance and return to Thee, O Lord. Lord, give us holy priests. Thou Thyself maintain them in holiness, 
O Divine and Great High Priest, may the power of thy mercy accompany them everywhere and protect them from the devil's traps and snares, which are continually being set for the souls of priests. May the power of thy mercy, O Lord, shatter and bring to naught all that might tarnish the sanctity of priests. For thou canst do all things. Amen. Virgin Most Powerful, pray for us. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.